This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening, you're listening to my unedited conversation with the late, legendary Stutz. I spoke with him at his home in Chicago on December 2, 2004. This interview was included in our program, Studs Turkle on Life, Faith, and Death, and originally broadcast in February 2005. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Here. It sound all right? Yeah. Can you really hear me? Am I speaking too quickly? I hear you pretty well. All right. I, we can make it out. You're going to ask me to repeat All right. It. Okay. Because I, I speak quickly, and I will try How's the sound man hearing us? Pretty good? Okay, one second. You want Stubbs to just talk? No, I just want her to talk for me. So oh. You just want, when he... You want, you want levels on me? I Okay. Okay. Can you hear? Yeah. Okay. Want to try us out for sound? Can you, can, are you hearing? Go ahead, Krista. Is the the level good for you now? I hear you well enough, you know. Okay, okay. Sure. I'm trying to figure out what Mitch needs from us. As long as we're conversational, you know. That's what I, it's not an interview, it's not a. No, it's conversation. It's a conversation. Hear us all right? Yeah, okay. Will you let us know whenever Krista can fire away? Can I fire away? Okay, well, I, you've written so much, and you've lived a long life, and there's a lot about you out there. But when I started reading you, knowing that I'd have a chance to meet you, I really got very focused on your book about death, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Um, and, I, and I decided that I'd really like to zero in on that work and that, what you've been thinking about that subject. I think it, it's an amazing book. Um, I don't think there's anything else like that, like this out there with people speaking so articulately and honestly and intelligently about this subject that it's so hard even to think about. So I was really struck by it, and I'd like to just... Well, that was a book was a revelation to me as well. well even though I put the book together and met these people, and how I meet them is one of the, another story mm-hmm. in all the books. Very often it's impromptu, but very often it's not. Uh, it's some, someone I know about. I want to know more about that person whom I have known for years, that has been acquainted to for years. Now, how do you talk about death? <laughs> well, the circle being broken, as you know, is it? very familiar folk tune the right. Carter family sang or the others wrote it, you know. And how did you uh, decide to give that, make that the title of the book? Well, for years I've been a disc jockey over radio station Chicago, WFMT, that is known for its classical music primarily. I was its one aberration. Right. And I could play anything I wanted for an hour. So I was on that for 45 years, reading short stories by, say, Flannery O'Connor, who was a very religious writer, by yeah. the way, or uh, Chekhov, or Ring Lardner, or John Cheever, or play recordings. I'm a disc jockey, primarily. Recordings might be Caruso, or Tito Gobi in, in uh, Tosca, or Louis Armstrong's West End Blues. A Woody Guthrie doing a Dust Bowl ballad. So it was eclectic. Mm-hmm. In fact, this next book, which I'm plugging now, <laughs> Go ahead. is called They All Sang. Oh, and, the, and the subtitle, Adventures of an Eclectic Disc Jockey, <laughs> which I chose arbitrarily, perhaps, or I don't know how, about 35 or so people in all the fields who attracted me, and they're talking about their work and a certain role they did, what that role meant. And so you're asking about a book. It's two before this one. Mm-hmm. There's a book that followed about people who've given their lives. Hope, hope dies last. 
who hope mm-hmm. dies last. Mm-hmm. It's about people who are crazy. Uh, they are crazy in a in a wonderful celestial sense. And so there are people who have given their lives to make this, quote-unquote, a better world at risk to themselves, of course, to income as well as body. But then, somewhere along the line, it wasn't due to my wife's dying. We married 60 years, mm-hmm. and then she died about five years ago. She yeah, did, she about did, five years ago. And she did die after you had begun the process of writing this well, book. I don't know death. how to answer that. I mean, did her dying have play a role in writing the book? I'm sure it did to some extent, because it was well, whatever it was, 60 years. Yeah. You see, she always said, well, she, you know, she looked quite young. You know, and It wasn't that the way she felt. Mm-hmm. Why do I still feel like a girl? You know? And so a couple of days before she died, our neighbors across the way, Laura Watson, uh, looked at, and she sees this girl in, uh, what do they call Denim things, the Levi's. Jeans, you know? yeah. This girl with a, with a daisy in her hair, plucking the weeds out of the garden. Says, Who's that girl? Oh, my God, it's Ida, you know, who was 87 at the time. (laughs) Well, in any event, did that play a role? It's hard to answer. It may have. Not deliberately. I mean, remember that I've hit various aspects. The Great American Depression history, World War II, uh, working jobs people Mm do, race black and white, growing old, age does, all variety aspects. What have we touched along the line? Death. <laughs> what if it all ends? And somewhere along the line, and then my wife died, and somewhere along the line, it hit me. of course, I'd play a lot of folk music and other stuff. Among them was with the circle being broken. And Doc mm. Watson, who's in the book, the blind singer, Doc makes it clear to me it wasn't the Carters who wrote it. It wasn't, it was born, and a guy named Willow Robeson. But that's, that song, of course, deals with uh, mortality, immortality, and family. Right. Family, of course. With the circle being broken. The inferences, no, it will not be bad English, you know, unbroken. Mm -hmm. And that's more or less how it came about. And once I start, it is astonishing how people... Now, why did I choose these people, a certain kinds of people? Now, this applies to all the books. The studs choose the ordinary people, and out of them comes this. Well, they're not ordinary people. That is, they are and they're not. Right. Like very often there's someone on that block and that woman says to me, she's trying to say what she wants to say, but she can't. Uh, It doesn't quite come to her. She says, you ought to see Lawrence. You ought to see Florence. (laughs) Right. Because Florence is at the end of the block. Florence is the one Mm -hmm. who starts things. Who can can articulate. And I connect. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's the Florences of the world, mm-hmm. by the way. They are ordinary people. They're the same economic stratum as the others, same religion, even same political beliefs in some cases, though there it changes. But it might be all that, but someone has that extra something in her, let's say her, that ena- enables her to be articulate. The others try to it. They're inchoate. It's unformed Mm -hmm. in them. And they can't. And she says in her way, that's a woman named Placid Florence. Florence Scala was my very first heroine, very first book. She's been in several. She became, well, I knew her 
because of a certain fight in town to save the Jane Addams community, the Hull House area, which was multicultural. And the big boys decided that's a great place for a university of Chicago, University of Illinois, in the city. It's the UIC, you know. Right. Nothing wrong with the school. It's a wonderful school. Kids are going to act great. Teachers are great. But the monstrosity is right in the heart of what was once a living community. Well, that was Florence who became heroin. I just chose her name. I I mean, let's say one of the people who I recall most vividly from the book, from uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, was the man who'd spent years on death row. On false. Oh, I just got a letter from him the other day. Well, and De- I think, did I, yeah, Delbert, Delbert Tibbs. Delbert Tibbs. And uh, he may have been, he was one of the most articulate and wise. Delbert Tibbs sent me a letter just the other day. I hadn't heard from Well, it was a fund he was starting. And he's a black man, tall, lean. Uh, I meet him. How do I meet him? Yeah, Through friends, find friends. Him? There's a committee to fight the death penalty. And Rob Warden is one of the guys I know. And he says, you got to meet this guy, Delbert Tibbs, who's now being freed because he was obviously innocent, the DNA, everything else. Mm-hmm. But he was a black guy hitting the road. He likes to hit the road a lot. He's a strange guy, close to his mother, who, by the way, reads scripture a lot. He's religious, but not. That is, he's also a skeptic. And he... And he's eclectically he religious. Brushes, he's very eclectic. To use your word, yeah. He brushes up on the Koran and the right. Talmud. The Buddha. But mostly, his articulateness, not his articulateness, his that sense of goodness about him. doesn't. He looks like you're Sharpie. He looks perfect, you know, skinny, mustache, hot shot, but precisely the opposite, you see. Hmm. And even he with the cops, a certain way. Well, you found him quite moving. Hmm. And he was there, he was, what is it like to be on death row? By that time, he says, different is you know the day you're going to die. And still, that's a horrible thing, too not knowing but he is just someone again I met by accident Mm. through meeting somebody in many cases there were people I knew who knew someone and by this time in Chicago I'm pretty fairly well known you know and so I was able sometimes that's a that's a uh, handicap see I'd rather not be known by so the person more natural right because it's a natural thing to follow when you're with someone you think is a, I hate to use that word, quote-unquote, celebrity, mm-hmm. you know, even a half-assed one. Uh, the right. you the want thing that's be- bad is that person will say something, or a person carrying a mic, as you are, you're important. You got a microphone. Mm-hmm. Your television, your radio, that makes you do, I'm on radio, I'm on TV. Well, now, maybe I should say something here that the person's not thinking that, but it's there. That will please that person. So talk to me about how you think, why you think you've been able to help people relax. I mean, talk to me about what it is that happens in a conversation when it is really special. (coughs) There's no one way... I have no, I don't prepare with notes. Oh, I'm interviewing a writer of a book. Let's say Russell Banks or Margaret Atwood, a writer of a book, a serious writer whom I like, others I wouldn't have. I read several of the books, you know, I I read a lot. And and we're talking about the book and the conversation becomes conversation about that character. No, a good way is even better way. Well, oh, well, I was going to say in the case of a writer you read or a composer, you, right. you brush up on the person. Yeah. 
But for an ordinary person, there's nothing to brush up on. Mm-hmm. That, they'll tell you where they were born and all that. So you start from scratch. For example, this is my very first book. I was visiting a housing project, but it was mixed. Now, back in the early days, you know, housing projects were quite good, you know, were very good. Placing, replacing tenements and shacks. In the days of Franklin D. Roosevelt, when it first began, the New Deal, that is now being dismantled completely. And so this woman I'm visiting, and I don't recall if she's white or black, she was light-skinned, she was very pretty, I know that, skinny, about four little kids running around, five, six-year-old kids, her kids, about four of them, running around the house. They're excited. Mama's got this thing in front of her, and she was never interviewed before. The tape recorder itself was still fairly new. And she's talking to me. And as she talks, I talk too, you know. And we become friendly-like, and and she forgets the thing. And she, I, I said something that either angered her or made her feel good, I forget. And then they finished the interview. I feel kind of good. I got a hunch or something here. I don't know why. I just feel kind of good. And you get a kick out of it? Yeah, yeah, I didn't think I would, but I forgot all about that microphone, Mm -hmm. forgetting about it. But the big thing is those kids, those five, six-year-old kids jumping around the house, they want to hear Mommy's voice. They know it plays back. And I said, you be quiet now. Now, don't jump around so much. You be quiet, and I'll play it back for you. And so I'm playing back the voice that she herself never heard before. She never heard herself talking, or in this case, thinking as well as talking. And suddenly she said something on the microphone she heard as the kids are dancing around. And she puts her hand to her mouth and says, Oh, my God. I said, what? And she says, I never knew I felt that way mm. before. Well, that's a great moment. She's saying, I never knew I felt that way before. It's only a discovery she's made as well as I making one. So it's that we're both on a journey. Way. You might say we're both on a sort of journey. And do you think that that the presence of another person, of you, the conversation partner, makes that kind of uh, discovery possible? Well, the discovery by another person, it would depend who the other person is. What the other, now, not is. We're all basically human. What the person has in mind is it to make the five o'clock news. Right. Is it to say to a mother whose child is dying in her arms, there was a slum fire. How do you feel? <laughs> I mean, to make five o'clock news. You know. I'm giving a horrible example, of course. But it depends what the purpose is. My purpose what is it makes people tick? Oh, well, you got to start in the beginning. History. My publisher called me. Remember, this all came about because I was a disc jockey. I still call myself a disc jockey, even this recent book that'll come out, whatever it does. It's still Adventures of an Eclectic Disc Jockey, the subtitle. You still... The publisher happened to catch some of my interviews of different people. These were known people, like Bertrand Russell, Mm. Brando. And he said, how about you doing a book about ordinary people and their lives? Because he just published a book about China, about what happened after the Mao Revolution. How did the city change because of the revolution? Not the city, the town. 
the little town, how did it change? Unbound feet mm-hmm. of women, big one, or whatever it might be. And he said, why don't you do one about an American village, Chicago, in the middle of its own revolution, right. early 60s, cybernetics, the civil rights, the anti-war, the various things. I said, you out of your mind, you crazy. So I did the victory in America. That's how it began. Mm. The ordinary, non, non-celebrated people, the mm-hmm. ones. Celebrities, by and large, are a pain in the ass. You know. <laughs> no, they are, because you know they say the same thing. Right, and they've the, said it too many they, times. They, they had to push the movie they're in, the, right. push the book they're in. So that means nothing at all. Although now and then I use someone for a certain purpose. Like I, someone bought me out, how come you use Joan Crawford in one of your books? I said, because I wanted Joan Crawford in that book. Mm-hmm. I read a little about her, the poor family from, and she has dictionaries. This is Joan Crawford. And what was it made me see her? Oh, I was interviewing an autograph hound. A girl works in a factory. But her whole life is Joan Crawford. She's the head of the Joan Crawford fan club. And she collects stuff on Crawford, tons of it. And that's her life. And what is she collecting? About whom? Who is it? An empty sort of person, really. An empty Crawford. And it's what she's collecting. That's her surrogate life. So I want to know what it is she's collecting. That's why I saw Joan Crawford. Okay. That's one of the very few times. I, oh, I did remember I'm a disc jockey, so I did interview actors whom I admire, or playwrights, Arthur Miller, Tennessee well, Williams, yeah. Lillian Hellman, certain ones. And so that's the only time I interview people who are known. Right. So I want to talk about this book, about your book about death. And yeah. I, you know, one thing that is very striking that I, I didn't expect um, is that it's it's really a very religious book. Religious book? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of religion in it, all the way through it, right? I mean, did you know that, 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 that those themes would be so prominent when well, you started Well, I knew that? religion would play a role in it. Well, I, to be fair, I happen to be an agnostic. Okay. You're an agnostic, is, don't you? Oh, yeah. No, a cowardly atheist. <laughs> and I'm an agnostic. At the same time, religion, as this election will tell you, in a, in a very perverse way, in a frightening way, something else. Uh, but uh, religion, well, you know the most religious people in the country are? Black people. Right. Uh, by far. You know, Gary Wills says. Mm-hmm. Gary Wills wrote a, one of his books is one of the least known. Maybe one of the most. It's called Under God, Religion mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. and it's most well a great deal about African Americans and the church. Well, we know the church has played a tremendous role in the civil rights movement and everything has been a social center. But nonetheless, they are by far the most devout church-going people in the country. Yes, but I don't know question. Sunday, you never find a Sunday as you do in black communities. You wouldn't find it in white communities. You find nothing that way. And so religion plays a role, naturally. But my friend who died recently, Vern Jarrett, who's a black black, uh, journalist, Vern is non-religious, but he felt the importance of religion when his son died. And he felt how important it was, that church, with all the ritual, with all the hours, almost as long as a cat. It was, it was Episcopalian, black Episcopalian, mm-hmm. but it was as long as a Catholic ceremony. Oh, a high church, probably. Yeah, Anglo- it was a high Anglo-Catholic, church. Anglo-Catholic, yeah. And it was forever and ever and ever. But he, it gave him solace. That's the, so in that sense, without being philosophical or about it. In that sense, the word is faith you've got. Mm-hmm. Faith. It's a faith 
Now, the word faith and religion are one unentwined so often. Oh, I have faith my ball team is going to win. Right. I have faith we'll win that lottery. But mostly tied up with God, uh, with religion, faith in that sense. And so religion played a tremendous role in uh, the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it had to. And so it's hard to separate the two. So you have religion used as it was in this last election, of course, at the, which is a variation of Arthur Miller's The Crucible. Right. I mean, and it, right. And this, the, the politicized religion of the last election has gotten, yeah. has gotten people paying attention. But I think what your book is a chron- chronicles is, is actually the way people live with religious ideas. And it's so, so much about asking questions, right, rather than having answers. Well, that's right. But it's woven all the way through these it, people's reflections. It's all through. In fact, I, I, quest, I mentioned Vern. And he says, Vern Jarrett. Mm-hmm. And he says, I never dreamed I'd want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. And there's music in the back. <laughs> and he says, and yet I needed that. See, I needed that. And so... The expression of the expression of religion, in the true sense of faith, mm-hmm. belief, since science and medicine said no, despite all the advances, last stage of cancer, or whatever it is of heart failure, no, there's something. So you give up, you lose somebody, who is close to you, or whatever it might. Well. What is the saddest? Can you get any? And you look for what you can get. And that's where the word faith comes in. Faith is used, of course, in phony terms. Right. There was a movie years ago called The Faith Healer, a novel. The faith healers who are con artists, we know that, play upon the superstitions of people, religions, the faint hopes of people. Mm-hmm. And that's the faith healer. At the same time, someone will tell you that faith healers have their own kind of an effect sometimes. But religion and, see, the word faith, your series is called Faith. Uh, This book happens to fit right into it Mm -hmm. because it's all about faith. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are non-religious here and there. Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I've just been reading his books, and I, I was so happy to see him in there. And well, Kurt, he's called a secular humanist. Mm-hmm. Well, to him, it's another thing entirely. It's the big sleep. Yeah. It's the big sleep. But you wrote, um, in the in the prologue to the book, you wrote, everything about this book became unexpectedly for me, a journey into long-suppressed memories and all sorts of all sorts of ambivalences in feeling of which I wasn't aware. Tell me about some of those ambivalences of feeling. I don't know how to describe that. Right now, see, I got this accident that changed my whole life, obviously. See, before I was I describe myself as an elderly man of some vigor, now I'm just an old, old man. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'm, I'm 92. Yeah. I'm 93 in December, so that's pretty long. Rather it's impressive. F- and a rather fruitful life. Mm-hmm. Number of books and documentaries and programs. So it's pretty full. So I don't, and I'm not lying about this. I don't feel that, uh, in fact, when after the accident occurred, and I was in pretty bad shape, I said, I don't mind kicking off. I'd like to finish this book. It so happened this book that'll come out next Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this book was almost finished. That's the thing. 
And I got a young guy to just do little things here and there. And Jonathan Cott. Young guy. He's about 69. <laughs> but a young guy. It's all relative, of course. And so if I were to die in my sleep, I mean, I wouldn't feel that lost. I mean, I, I wouldn't feel that cheated at this stage of the game. 92 going to 93, and I've accomplished a certain kind of something or other. So that's pretty good. Now, how I would have felt 20 years ago is something else. How you but even now, about faith or even now, why am I here with my caregiver friend? Mm-hmm. You see, why am I here if I want? I don't want to die. Do I welcome death? Well, of course not. Would I like to live it out to see that? Yeah. Would I like to get better? Sure. Maybe there is a slight better. I can walk around with a cane now. I couldn't before have an appetite I couldn't before. At the same time, not the same person. And so I still fight death. I don't welcome it, no. At the same time, do I fear it? That's a good, now here's where the truth and honesty come in. I'll probably lie. (laughs) I guess so. Well, in the first place, you have friends. Many of my younger, most of your friends are a generation younger. My contemporaries, about five or six left, you know. But my, most of my friends are, uh, would be in, in the 50s, you know, mm-hmm. six, something like that. And I don't want to, I'm getting a kick out of things. At the same time, this daily having to have help now and then, I find humiliating. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, death does not mean the same thing as it would to you or to others of your contemporaries. It it seems um, it's interesting. Uh, as you say, when you set out to do this project, you were asking people to talk about the thing we never talk about, and yeah. most of us don't even like to think about. And I even found it hard to approach reading the book. But um, when people start talking about death, and as you're doing now, you actually start talking about life. You right? see, now you come. See, you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now you come to the key of it, of course. Yeah. How can you separate death from life? So the important thing about death is life Mm -hmm. because it's the end of something of which you are conscious and aware and have to some slight extent will. Not much, unfortunately, at this moment, you know. But you are conscious of something and that is your life. Now, what have you done with your life? See, mm-hmm. now it comes the evangelical part. Now it comes the preaching part. I'm always doing that <laughs> because the books are political by nature. All mm-hmm. my books are because I think life is political. They say, How's, "You mean life is? You, you mean you just, air is air is? Well, of course, air is political. What's the environmental problem all about? Mm. <laughs> well, of course, it's political." Keeping the air clean and the water clean and the, and all the stuff that causes your physical discontents and early death out. Mm. Of course it's political. And so what you do during the time you're alive, alive so the last book I did, the very last, the one that followed. Hope Dies Last. For the circle, Who Dies, mm-hmm. Hope Dies, mm-hmm. is about certain kinds of people. Mm-hmm who have put themselves out on the line, those I call the crazy people, mm-hmm. who put themselves out on the line. Some are known, you know, Tom Hayden, a few here and there. Uh, most are not known, but they're the, they're the ones who are out in their way to try to make this, a, using the phrase, a better world, which, of course, causes a snicker and a laugh these days, you see. And so 
how can you separate it? The book is about life. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not about death at all. It's about life and the end of life. It's about the ending of life mm-hmm. and how you feel. Whether the regrets that you have, the rue that you have, or good feelings you have. In many cases, there are these regrets. But by, by the way, it's a book of many regrets. Mm-hmm. Things you did not do, or perhaps should have done. Especially in many cases, the people close to you. Mm-hmm. That's a big one, too. Something else that people in the book always talk about, or it seems like they all talk about, even if they're atheists, is uh, the afterlife, if there is one, or they, they've had to struggle with the question and answer it in some way. I wonder, oh, you called yourself an agnostic, so what does an agnostic yeah. do with the afterlife? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> For me, well, I want to be cremated, of course. Uh, those are my wife's ashes. On the window, so mm. next to the daisies, which kind of neat, fresh daisies, mm. which were her favorite flowers. And I want my ashes mixed with hers and spread of a bug house square. You got to know what a bug house square is. Well, it's like Hyde Park in London. You've heard of that? Yeah. It's a famous speech corner. People mm-hmm. talk about everything. And Sunday, every Sunday, Hyde Park is jammed. Oh, the subject often naturally for the years was India, and now it's the Middle East, of course. Yeah. So, uh, but and so there's Bughouse Square in Chicago. Unfortunately, nobody goes there now. It used to be full of guys, mostly unemployed, and uh, hundreds of people around about. And there were speeches. And they were funny and wonderful, and there were hecklers. And the hat was passed. So I want to. So I have the ashes strewn around Bughouse Square. And if a lawyer tells me that it's against the ordinance to do it, I'll say, well, it's been done. Then let him, let him sue the ground, or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> to get it back. Why do you want your ashes scattered there? What? Why there? Well, because... I was a kid, used to go there. It's right next to the Newberry Library, a big library in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to Newberry Library and read something on a Friday. And then uh, at 6 o'clock I'd come out, and now the guys had gathered soapboxes. Yeah. And it was very exciting. Yeah. Is that where you learned to love talking, do you think? Well, talking, of mm-hmm. course, and heckling back and forth. Now you didn't, and so you asked about yeah the afterlife. The afterlife, right. well, I can't take bets on it. Who's going to take my bet? You know, I myself don't believe in any afterlife. I do believe in this life, and what you do in this life is what it's all about. And then you decide in your own way whether that life you've lived has had any meaning or not. I don't know. Now it gets a little on the pretentious mm-hmm. side. Um, you know, one thing that struck me when I was thinking about, you, you, you were born the year the Titanic went down. That's Oh, yeah. That, you know, that's so vivid. Um, but And also, you talk about being a child with asthma. Lots of children have asthma now, but it's yeah. not generally life-threatening. Yeah. And, you know, the girl next door who died of scarlet fever, I, it struck me that death, maybe in a, earlier generations in this country, was closer for a lot of children. Well, you know something? That's an interesting point. That never came up. I mean, could have brought that up somewhere in the book. That's a good point. It, see, there'd be signs on the doors... Like the girl, the family below us, we lived on the fifth floor, fourth floor, then her third floor. And I said, it said, scarlet fever, beware, see. Yeah. And she died of scarlet fever. She was about eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, diphtheria. And they'd have, they'd have on the wall would be these signs. And this woman in the book who collects, you, maybe you come up with a short one, 
she collects artifacts, black ribbons, black envelopes, all sorts of badges. And there are scores of hundreds of them. And she's a collector of that. As a kid, her aunt used to take her out every Sunday, like on a holiday picnic, to go to the cemetery. They didn't even know. But they see the water it, uh, put a put a new uh, flower in it. But it was like a uh, vacation. So she. But this matter of our kids acquainted with the idea of it mm-hmm. earlier, and yet we have more and more thanks to TV and thanks to technology. Right. We have everything. We have. In fact, see. I have this theory about what's nothing unusual about it. There's always a gun with two hands, and often it's a girl dick, a girl detective, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I said a girl dick. That was interesting. <laughs> See? And, and, and so holding the gun, well, I could say, boy, oh, boy, never saw the phallic symbol displayed as openly as that, you know. But the gun, they shoot as often as the guys do. Yeah. And so there's the awareness of that death, which is of utter meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. We don't care that the guy, the guy who was shot deserved and it to actually, begin with. It's much it was more an actor violent. doing a role, yeah. neither got his role, and nothing. But the personal aspects of death, mm-hmm. of the neighbor child, you see, that is something else. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you if, if in your lifetime death had changed in the way people think about it. You just um, pointed to how, in fact, we've put death all around ourselves again in another form. In yeah, fiction. see, now, we, see, we make death suddenly have no meaning. Yeah. And by death having no meaning, life has no meaning. Remember, you can't separate death and life. Death means the end. That's it. Mm-hmm. And as to whether there's an afterlife or not, that's for each one to choose. I, by the way, I don't mock anybody. I know. I mean, if someone, my so many speaking of afterlives, and you, you don't fault them for that, the belief, the need, the belief, and well, this is Vern, even the the agnostic Vern, let alone the various. Guys from different, uh, women with different faiths. But the big thing is, our kids are aware of death, its meaning today. They see more of it, phony, ersatz death, the phoniness, of course. They yeah. see it right now. We'll see about five shows right now. Mm-hmm. And the first shot will be a girl detective. Two hands on the gun, not one. And the death of who? Mm-hmm. That thing. And so one one American knocks out ten of them. You know. Right. Let me ask you this: You interviewed people who'd encountered death in many different kinds of contexts and circumstances: in war, through illness, uh, the woman who survived Hiroshima who was there during the bombing. Um, she talked about that, that that was death death without dignity. And I wonder if, um, if you found people to speak differently about the meaning of death and life, de- depending on the circumstance in which they encountered well, the end again, of life. Well, there you see, uh, Tammy, you're talking about the, the Japanese woman who's now a hospital aide, mm-hmm. a psychiatric aide working on life. Hmm. And she's a little while girl. hers was so overwhelming, hundreds of thousands yeah. all over her. It wasn't a question of a single death. It was looking for her mother, hoping she could hear that familiar song that her mother sang. But I'm sure it has. Well, I can't talk for others, even though I put forth this book. Yeah. Still can't talk for others and their feelings about it. But did you hear common themes 
that surprised you or differences that surprised you? You know, the things that came up again and again that there were echoes of. Well, faith, mm. <laughs> as you think, uh, that it's, well, faith also could equal desperation, mm-hmm. you see. Mm-hmm. There's that too. I say faith. Because I'm not a minister, you see. And it's, uh, here's science. Well, let's not talk about uh, stealth stamp, you know, Let's not talk about that, which, of course, is enough to make me want to cause death. <laughs> what is, what is? Why do we kill people, huh? <laughs> what, what's good enough to make No, me? the style, you know, the attack on, so what's it called? Cells. Oh, stem cells. Oh, stem oh, okay, cells. all right. No, we won't talk about that. Yeah. I mean, despite that, and advances being made, leaving out the political things. Mm-hmm. And the, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope without someone who's so close to you. Well, to someone who is agnostic, it is envy of the person who has faith. Mm. Because at least they have that. That solace. You wish you were as, well, the word isn't innocent. Yeah. Yeah, you, you were as, naive, as innocent, I was going to say naive. That's presumptuous of me to say that. But you have to have a belief in that afterlife. I mean, in many cases, you don't have to, mm-hmm. but it's needed. In, but be, okay, but beyond the solace, I mean, I wonder if you changed your way of thinking about faith or if it got larger in any way. Oh, well, did I? I, I don't know. I got, I, I'll, have to dwell, I'll have to stick with that for a while. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm too soon. Okay. Also with my own accident. Did it make you ask any questions about faith that you hadn't asked Oh, before? yeah. Well, it made me understand. It made me understand the power that it has, whether it's real or not, but the power that you think it has, it does have that. And you also understand why people are so religious out of, out of despair. By the way, faith comes out of hope. It also comes out of despair. Mm-hmm. And what about these people you've, you've interviewed in Hope Dies Last? people who've really given themselves over yeah. to good and to helping others. Was faith um, a theme, an echo in that? Well, pa- in there those they interviews? are. They, by the way, they are, a good number of them have their own doubts, too. Yeah. You'll find a good number of them in that last book with a lot of self-doubts. Well, since November 2nd, <laughs> it's quite, it's quintupled. <laughs> but, but, but uh, there's still that feeling that there's something within people not yet tapped. The possi- It's about possibilities mm-hmm. within people, basically. But it's mostly about life. Again. It come, we come back. The book is not about death. We book about death. I say, no, it's about life, mm-hmm. man. And uh, when you've lived a certain amount of years... And naturally, you want to live some more years. But it's kind of poppy. You want to know what's going on. You still bucket, but not nearly as much. At least speaking for myself, yeah. I can't speak for others. So that's about it. I think yeah. you're, you're yeah. good. Well, thank you. can I have, can I have one more question? <laughs> Are you done? Are you tired? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just, I want to read this. This was from Uta Hagen, the actress who you interviewed in the death book. She died when? About two months ago. Okay, let's wait for the... Two, three months ago. Okay. We'll just let you... Okay, can we get you some water? What? Oh, do you want some water? Oh, he'll get you some. Yeah. What would you like? How do you know that? Oh, you, you made a motion. Yeah, I'm sorry. You okay? She's good. <laughs> you were saying. Yeah, all right. 
We need to. Okay, well, let's wait until we get the. Um, I've taken a lot of your time, but this is great. No, it's go ahead. So, all right. Okay. All right. Um, this is just her. She's not a religious person, I think, from the essay and from the interview you did with her. But um, okay. Right. I was, I, uh, this was one, um, your interview with Uta Hagen, and the actress, in, yeah. in your book, uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? She's not a religious person. I think um, maybe more of the people in that book are, but she's not. But she does have this definition of faith that creeps in. Uh, faith, the miracle of creation, is what a human being is capable of communicating. It's not a private thing. It has to be communicated. She goes on to say, which is what I love about art, that you pass on. You enlighten people. You make them laugh. You make them cry. These are the things that make our life worth living. To me, that's art. That's my religion. I, I thought of, actually, when I read that about the work you've done and how you've spent your life listening and talking and helping people bring these things into word, turn them into words. And uh, then I wondered what you thought of that. Well, that's wonderful. Words. Of course, quoting Uta Hagen, she was, you know, remember, that's an actress mm-hmm. talking, not just an actress, a great actress. Mm-hmm. You've seen Virginia Woolf? Yeah. Well, uh, did you ever see her do Ophelia? No. With, uh, with Paul Robeson. But uh, Virginia Woolf, and she also did a later play, one that dealt with an elderly psychiatrist, I forget her name, a rather known woman, psychiatrist who was an antagonist of mm. Freud. And she was great, but her... But that comment, she's really talking about art there, mm-hmm. you see. Right, she's talking about communicating writ yeah, large. Yeah, and communicating. Mm-hmm. See, I opened her... Remember, I opened it with, with, with the aria from Tosca, Visi Darte. Mm. You know, when Tosca pleads with this police chief to leave her alone, that her life is for love and art. Mm. And art, you know, art. The idea is art is long and life is short, you know. <laughs> but uh, life, so basically that's a variation on that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a nice ending. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That worked out very well. Yeah. Why'd we do a good half hour at least, didn't we?